You go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to keep walking through Joshua this morning. So we took uh, two weeks to go through Joshua chapter 1, where Joshua was being commissioned by God after Moses' death, uh, being commanded to be strong and courageous, to to believe God's promise that God was about to uh, carry through on his promise all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, telling them that they would, in fact, inherit and, and, and uh, live in the land of Canaan. And now God is about to uh, give it to the people, and yet he's calling Joshua to lead the people to, to set their eyes on him and, his, and the validity of his promise. Um, and in chapter 2, what we start to see is, is Joshua has passed word throughout the camp of, of the, uh, the Israelites, letting them know that the imminent entry into the land is about to take place. He says, right, within three days, uh, you're going to be entering into the land. And right around the same time in chapter 2, what we're going to see is, is those first steps before the whole host of the people of Israel have gone into the land. Uh, kind of Joshua's first steps, and then somebody who's going to re-enter the story again as the people get ready to uh, lay siege to Jericho in a couple of chapters. Uh, so we're going to look at the whole chapter, Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. Uh, it all goes together. Um, there are there will be points, I guess i just lay it out so you have expectations at a time. There are points as we walk through Joshua that we're going to, uh, most of the time we're going to take a chapter at a time. Um, one week, just just so you're aware, we're going to take eight chapters, which seems like that's ridiculous. Um, but it's going to be where, where the people are parsing, or Joshua's parceling out the land to the people, and it's fairly repetitive, and yet there's one overarching theme within that. And so, uh, to the best of my ability, we're keeping all of those uh, central things together so that we're not just splitting narrative in the middle and then going, I hope you remember that seven weeks from now. Um, but all of Joshua chapter 2 is going to feed in together, uh, and, and we'll see uh, it has a, a very real significance uh, in the life of the people of Israel, but I believe it also uh, it hits home at, at the heart of the gospel that carries over into the mission of the church today. Uh, so Joshua chapter 2, if you'll read with me, it's on the screen for you if you'd rather follow along there. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. 
And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. How many of you have heard this narrative before, this section of Scripture? Like this, this goes back, like, if you spent any time as a child in Sunday school, you've heard this, right? Like, and you probably did a craft with, like, a red yarn out of a window. Like, not probably the first time ever that you've heard this, but maybe it is. Um, but it is a relatively well-known passage of Scripture, especially within the, 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 the book of Joshua. Um, but where we're picking up, so, so Joshua sends two spies right on the heels of God telling him, now is the time, you're about to go in, I'm going to give you the land, just as I promised, you're going to go in. Joshua sends these two men into the land, and he tells them specifically, I want you to go to Jericho. Specific eye for this place. And at this point, in the land of Canaan, it's primarily built up of city-states. It's not under control of one major group of people, right? That's why God says, I'm going to give you the land of the Hittites, Jebusites, uh, Perizzites, Canaanites, right? He goes, the list is on and on and on. In the land, there's, there's all of these city-states. There's a king of the city, the king of the city of Jericho, who we're going to see in just a minute. And the first target that we see of the people going into the land, as God is going to give it to them, is this place, Jericho. Uh, and so then the, the majority of the chapter, outside of those handful of verses at the end where the spies return back, takes place in this city. Uh, what's interesting, though, is maybe the unexpected part is where they land in the city as they go into it. They come into the house of Rahab, and, and all that we know at this point is Rahab is a prostitute and she lives in the city of Jericho. And for some reason, the spies have chosen her house to come to. 
Now, keep in mind, so you go like, why in the world would they go there? First of all, there's no Motel 6s, all right? Ancient, ancient, near east, like, there's no Motel 6s, there's, 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 there's no inns, there's no, like, there's no Hiltons, there's no Trump Tower, like, there's, there's a city and there are people that live there. Uh, the best way I can liken this is when we would go to, like, rarely, but when we went to a village in Africa, like, you had to know somebody and you stayed in their house or in a room that they provided to you because they don't have a place that's just set apart like, oh, this is where you rent and you come in and you stay here when you come to the village. It's like the only reason you would go there, at least in the village setting in Africa, is if you know somebody. So the only reason you would stay overnight in the village is if they know you, you're related to them. So it was really kind of an odd thing when we went to the village and spent a couple of nights there. Like, this is not something that people just do. If you think about that, in the same sense, it's probably true that there's not a whole host of people that a city-state like Jericho is just opening up and saying, hey, you're not from around here? Come on in and stay with us for a while. Probably doesn't happen. But the closest thing that would have been a room available would have been at the house of the prostitute or at, at Rahab's house. Now, how many people, would you say, enter into prostitution because that's really just their lofty career goal? Probably not very many. Like worldwide, most people that enter prostitution probably do so out of necessity. Not even their own necessity, but necessity of their family. Right? And we find out later that her parents are alive, right? Because one of the conditions that she says is, I will, I'll, I'll cover you, but when you come back, spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Right? So she's not coming out of a place of she just grew up as an orphan and, well, this is the only place. So there's probably, there's, there's two arcs that are, pro, that are possible. And, and we're not going to go too far into speculation because we don't know. But she's either come to this way because her family is economically destitute and this is the way for, to keep the family afloat. Or the second thing that would be likely because it happens throughout and we see it throughout the Old Testament is that prostitution in this time frame is often also linked to worship. So temple, temple worship, temple prostitutes, temple idolatry. And it might be a combination of the two. But if you think about this, if, if that is the case, then here is a person, and, and remember, why are the people of Israel, if you go back to last week, why are the people of Israel being given the land of Canaan? Why, why is God driving out the people of Canaan? It's tied to their worship. Because they don't worship the Lord as they're supposed to. It is not, again, just to reiterate this because we're walking through Joshua for a while. It is not linked to the ethnicity of the people who live there. It is linked to their worship. As long as they worship somebody other than the Lord, the Lord will drive them out. And he warns his people, if you go and do the same, you will be driven out. So the place that they find refuge very likely could be a place that is emblematic of temple worship to another god. That's kind of crazy, right? Like, wow, you could have looked anywhere else, guys. They looked there. And somehow, and we're not told how, it's told to the king, hey, there's spies in the city. Now we might go, wow, in a big city like that, you notice these people? And again, walk this back with me. It's probably not a huge city. It's not New York City. When two strange guys walk into the city, everybody knows. Like later on in the Old Testament, we'll see that the people of Israel have a dispute, and they and they narrow it down based on how people pronounce a single word, and they're like, "Oh, you're you're not from us." So how much more so? Like these two guys that come in, 
They're noticed by the city, and it's told to the king, there's two people, and they're Hebrews, they're people of Israel, they've come here, and, and they immediately understand why. It's probably not hidden to their view that the people of Israel have been hanging out in the wilderness for 40 years, and that now they're camped next to the Jordan, and they're just amassing people there. And, we, and you can see that because when Rahab lies to them and says they've already gone out, where do they run? They go straight to the Jordan. Why? Because they knew there's this huge group of people right here on the river, right? And so they, they, they say there's, two, there's these two guys that have come in. They're here to search the land. And then we're also not told, but the king immediately goes to Rahab and says, okay, I want the two guys that came into your place. They're spies that have come to look out and, and to search out the land. Which leads us to maybe, uh, maybe you have a, an ethical dilemma right here, right? Because Rahab says, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, there was two guys here, but they're not here anymore, and I don't know which way they went. I think they went that way. And she takes a risk, and she lies to the king, which is interesting because in a few minutes, she's going to negotiate with the spies for her future. Now, if Rahab was concerned about leveraging this situation just for personal gain, she probably says, yeah, they're right here. But here's what I want from you. I, I want you to, to take care of my family. I want you to give them land. I want you to give them this. I want you to give them this, right? We would negotiate for something of benefit. But she points them in the wrong direction. In verse 5, she says, uh, the gate was about to be closed at dark. The men went out, and I don't know where they went. But if you go after them, I'm pretty sure you'll catch them. And then the little postscript in verse 6, but she'd actually already hid them on the roof. And the people looking for them pursue, verse 7, all the way to the Jordan, and the gate was shut once they go out. So there's no entry, no exit, and these two guys stuck on the roof. And the question of verse 4, though, and, and, and then of verse 6 and 7 is, she had hidden them, and then it says that she hid them on the roof under the flax, but it, at this point we still don't know why. Why would a Canaanite woman hide spies that are coming in to destroy her city? And then we go, if you keep going with verses 8 through 11, it drills right to the heart of Rahab and why she's hiding them. So before they lay down, before they go to sleep, she comes up to the roof and she says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And the fear of you has fallen on us and all of our hearts have melted within us. Isn't it amazing? Like the people of Israel have not yet entered the land. God has told Joshua, I'm giving you the land. I'm going to hold up my promise. And the one person that harbors these two spies says, I know that the Lord has given you this. Uh, your people haven't even set foot in it yet. And yet I know what's happened. And, and it's tied to, she says, because we know what the Lord has already done for you. We know how the Lord dried up the Red Sea before you and you came out of Egypt. We know how you destroyed Sihon and Og, these two kings and their kingdoms outside of the land. Like I, We've heard about your God and what he has done. And therefore we know, I know, that the Lord your God, she says, he is God of everything. Now think about that. For somebody who worships and has worshipped her entire life, along with all of her people, worshipped 
any and other, every other God, she says, wait a minute, we've been hearing something. We've been hearing something about your God, and we've come to the conclusion, I've come to the conclusion that he is God of heavens and the earth beneath. So, I want you to swear to me by the Lord that I, as I have dealt kindly with you, you'll deal kindly with me. Now, if you remember last week, this raises kind of an interesting dilemma for these two spies. Right? In Deuteronomy chapter 20, rules of engagement were, wipe out everybody. Don't leave anything. When you come to the cities, you lay siege to them. Nothing lives. And now she says, I know that the Lord, your God, he is God, so spare me and spare my whole family. What's interesting is, in this moment, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we're not going to do a whole lot of Bible drill this morning, but Hebrews chapter 11, often called the, the, the hall of faith or the chapter of faith, recounting all the way from uh, Abel all the way through uh, the council of Scripture, just uh, not an exhaustive list, but, a, but a, 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 a plentiful list of people who acted by faith. Starting with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we get a definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. And, and, and I've talked about this before. Biblical hope is not pining away and I wish, I hope, I wish, I hope, I hope, I wish. It is a certainty of things to come even though we have not realized them yet. Right, so the, the a biblical hope is a sure, confident hope that what has been said will in fact take place. It is not a coin flip and saying, I think it will work out. Right? Biblical hope is a conviction, a deep seated confidence that what has been promised will be reality. And, he, and you see that in the conviction of things not seen or not yet seen. So then we get all of these examples of people who acted by faith, confident in hope of what God would do and how he would act and how he would deliver on his promise. And if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, uh, we're going to pick up kind of midstream with the people of Israel. It says, By faith the people, or the people of Israel, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So by faith, the Israelites saw God open the channel through the Red Sea, and by faith, they stepped through it confident that the walls would not collapse on top of them, right? Which goes completely outside of the wheels of measure, right? If you were driving by the lake today and it was like, that shoreline is way different than normal, would would your immediate thought be like, I think I should go walk in it? Or would you be like, "Mm, I'm not going to do that? Or if you went to the ocean and it was like, hey, walkway. We'd probably like, first of all, we go, that's not normal. I'm not doing that because it's, it's probably going to close up really quick, right? But by faith, the people of Israel obeyed God following through on the Red Sea. And the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. And then notice this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. But then right after that, and we're going we're gonna to deal with that in a, in a couple weeks with the walls of Jericho. But it says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient in the city of Jericho because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, that's kind of an interesting wording, right? Because she had given, she, 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 by faith, received these spies into her home and treated them kindly. You're like, what does that have to do with faith? She was being hospitable. The faith portion is is what she requests of them. 
by faith, she, re, she brings them in. And by faith, she says, I know the Lord, your God, he is God. Therefore, swear by him and save my life and deliver our lives from death. She knew the Lord. Like, Notice what she, she has already said that she knows is true. I know that the Lord has given you the land, which includes Jericho. I know that the fear of you has fallen on us. I know that all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. We have heard how the Lord did this for you. And then one other thing that she knows is that if they do not swear to save her, or if God does not act on her part, verse 13, she knows her and all of her family will be delivered to death. If God does not act towards her in accordance to grace. So by faith, she says, she takes in spies at a, at a potential detriment to her own livelihood and her own life. Can you imagine if this doesn't work out well for her, or even on this side of things, she has not yet seen the armies of Israel encircle around Jericho. She has not yet seen the walls of Jericho fall. But what she does know at this point is that she does have a king who is looking for these spies. And when he doesn't find them and when he comes back, do you think that he will be really pleased with Rahab and her family? So in the moment, in the circumstances, what she is doing makes zero sense for self-preservation. And it may not surprise us in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea, but it might surprise us that it's by faith that Rahab doesn't die with the disobedient because she welcomes the spies. It's kind of an almost unusual and unexpected inclusion into Hebrews chapter 11. But then when we talk about all the things that, that Rahab knows, right? She knows what the Lord has done. She knows that the Lord has given the land. She's heard about what he's done at the Red Sea crossing. But think about what she has not experienced alongside of the people of Israel. She did not experience God unleashing plagues on the people of Egypt and seeing his hand of preservation upon his people. She didn't see the firstborn of all of Egypt killed and led out, and and the people of Israel led out with a faithful hand, including all of the plunder of the people of Egypt. She didn't see the Red Sea crossing. She didn't see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire every day. She didn't experience the giving of the law and the commandments at Mount Sinai. She didn't see or experience God's presence setting the top of the mountain on fire. She didn't see or experience the daily provision of manna in the wilderness and God's provision of water where there shouldn't have been water. If we were coming just into Joshua 2 and to the people of Canaan, if there was ever a person that we would not expect to respond to God in faith, it would be a Canaanite prostitute in the city of Jericho. And yet by faith, when she heard who God was and what he had done, or who God was and what he had done, she responded in faith. With her life on the line, she chose to trust God, and to trust him when she had only heard about him. Think about it, like she has not seen, like she hadn't seen any of the cities in Jericho fall. She's just heard about this people that are here, and she's heard about the God who fights on their behalf. But she's not seen any of it for herself, other than these two spies that come randomly into Jericho one day, and she hides them. 
It's, it's, it's kind of interesting when you, when you take this and you lay it alongside of some, some of Jesus' interactions with people in the Gospels. You think about the Roman centurion who, who, who comes to Jesus and asks him to heal. And, and Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, Not, nowhere in Israel have I seen such faith like this. Can you imagine the same kind of statement that God would make about Rahab, who has seen nothing of what God has done, has only heard about him, and yet stakes her entire life and livelihood on his goodness and his faithfulness? Is that, is that not the picture of faith? The conviction of things hoped for. The assurance of things not yet seen. Like, I know that he will deliver. You just have to give the word. That's incredible. By faith, she is trusting that God will deliver our lives from death. In verse 13. Without ever having any functional knowledge of walking among his people. Without ever having seen or heard Moses speak on behalf of God. All she has ever heard is, this is what God has done on the other side of the Jordan. And what we would almost expect, based off of Deuteronomy 20 and and some of the other passages we looked at last week, is for the spies to respond, gosh, we'd love to help you, but you're a Canaanite and you're a prostitute. Hands are tied. But there's none of that. Like there's no like there's not even there's no appearance of waffling or wavering with them. They says our lives for yours even to death. And when the Lord does this, when he gives us the land, we will deal kindly with you and with faithfulness. And she asks for a sure sign and they tell her to tie this scarlet cord in the window, which again, what is that if not an act of just faith? Especially when we, when we see how God will destroy the city of Jericho, it makes little sense that a cord hanging in a window will spare this room out of all of the city of Jericho. It has nothing to do with the spies. Like when we get there, the spies have no, like they don't get to tell God, here's what you need to do in regards to the city. It is simply God recognizing and honoring the faith of a woman who says, I trust you, I believe you, you will spare us because you are the God of heaven and earth. Like, it's all marked by this faithfulness because of who God is. And it's a picture in a lot of ways, and we'll get there when we talk about the fall of Jericho. Isn't it just an amazing corollary or picture of Passover? Anybody who stays in this room with a scarlet cord hanging out the window will be safe, but anybody who goes out of it will not be safe. When When the Israelites were in Egypt and Passover was coming... They were to paint the blood of the lamb over the door, and anybody who was in the house would be safe. But anybody left went out. What would happen? Not safe. It's an interesting picture that God brings in, or that allows the same picture of faith in a Canaanite prostitute as he does in his people of promise. And there's a faith response. So it says, as she sent them away, verse 21, she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Okay. That's what you said. That's what I'll do. So then we, we still kind of come to this and go, well, what, what does this have to do with you and with me, though? I say it has a lot more to do with us than, than we might think on cursory value. How many of you, just by survey, how many of you have seen the risen Jesus bodily from the dead? How many of you have... Some of you might say, I've seen the empty tomb because you've taken a trip to Israel. But how many of you have seen the empty tomb? How many of you have seen Jesus feed the 5,000? 
with your own eyes? How many of you have seen him walk on water with your own eyes? How many were with him when he called his disciples to himself? How many of you prayed alongside of him in the Garden of Gethsemane? How many of you, though, have heard that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh, dwelled among us, and went to the cross on your behalf? How many of you heard that? How many of you have responded to that and said, that is God's provision for a lost humanity, and that is my only hope to deliver my life from death? You're not people who have seen every one of God's faithful works from the foundations of the earth until now. And surely you have seen some of his faithful works in your life. But at the point when you came to him in faith, what did you know? You had heard or read, this is who he is and this is what he has done. And by faith, you said, I believe this is God's way of reconciling sinful people to himself. And if you have decided, if you have, if you have hung your faith on the person and the work of Jesus, how much of your livelihood hinges on that decision? Hopefully you'd say all of it. How much of your eternal hope hinges on something outside of yourself? How much of it hinges on the the, the work and the faithfulness of a, a God who you don't control? All of it. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, this is the same message the church continues to proclaim. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you have seen him raised from the dead, you'll be saved. Otherwise, the door and the window of salvation is closed because only those people who lived in the first century ever had a chance of being saved. So if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the promise, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, and this is, this is just as much you and I as it is Rahab, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Think about this. Like if Rahab in her belief would could be put to shame, like she would have hung out the scarlet cord, she would have made this deal with the spies, she would have hinged everything on the fact that there is a God who is the God of heaven and earth, and he alone can save us, and if she could be put to shame, she would have died with all the rest in Jericho. But instead, she wasn't killed with all the rest. She was spared along her and all of her household. Not put to shame. For there is no distinction, notice this, verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. In, in Rahab's case, there's no distinction between Jew and Canaanite. For the same Lord is Lord of all. For those who confess belief in him, not by on ethnic lines, but by faith in him, by worshiping him, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For you and for me, I have a, one of the questions, though. Who around us, in our culture, in our community, in our sphere of influence, and I wouldn't necessarily like ask them this question. This is more for you to think about. Who are, who are the Canaanite prostitutes in your life? Again, don't ask them that. It's important you don't phrase that question that way. Who are the people that are are seemingly outside 
That you would say, like, that person doesn't stand a chance. If, if God is, is making a special relationship with people, he's probably not making it with these, these folks. And yet the promise of Scripture is everyone. Doesn't matter where they come from. Everyone who responds to him in faith will be saved. Is it possible that in our daily lives we have cut people out of the circle of the opportunity of grace because we look at them and on face value, that doesn't make sense. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure when you go to Matthew chapter 1 that it's a little bit surprising to us when we start to read through Jesus' lineage, right? His genealogy, his human genealogy, the, the, the human family that God chose to bring him into uh, the fully God, fully man relationship. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 5, and it starts in verse 2 with Abraham walking down the family tree. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? By Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And we'll see, Ruth is another non-Israelite brought in by faith. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. David's great, was that great or great-great-grandmother, is Rahab. Somebody that God chose to display the wonders of his mercy and grace on. Somebody who is far off and then brought near through faith. So who are those people that we might look at and go, that they're far off? But notice this, salvation in Romans chapter 10. Salvation is still hearing the word, hearing what God has done, believing that who he is and what he has done is, is true of who he is and what he's done, and that is promised for all who call on him that they'll be saved and confessing with our mouths that that is true and that is what we're staking our lives on. Calling people to call on the name of the Lord. Noticing that he hears all who call on him. But then there's a challenge on Romans 10 as well. So everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will not be put to shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And notice this, how are they to believe in him in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching or proclaiming? And how are they to preach or proclaim unless they are sent? The reason why you and I exist as a church is in part of God's mission's heart is to be sent with the message, this is what God has done in Christ. This is what God has done to reconcile sinful people to himself. Presenting people with the opportunity to respond to the good news of who Jesus is. It's not the promise that everyone who hears will believe, but in order to believe, they have to hear. And how can they respond unless they've heard it? And so we, we might silently sit back and just hope that people would respond to a message that they've never heard before. But instead, who is God? This is the, the final question I ask you. Who is God sending you to? Think about it, like What did Rahab have to know in order to save her and her family? I've heard this is what's God, what God's done. She couldn't recite all of the Old Testament law back to them. She couldn't tell them all of God's interaction with, with his people throughout all of salvation history. 
All she knew is, your God delivered you, he can deliver me too. And surely she was called, she, she, she grew into the maturity of her faith afterwards. But you don't have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of all of God's work and all of creation in order to proclaim the good news of what God has done in Christ. But if you have experienced grace that comes through Jesus, you know enough to make him known. You know enough to let somebody hear. So by God's grace, might we be found faithful to proclaim, to share, to make him known, even to those who would seem very unlikely that would receive him. Because throughout Scripture, we see over and over again, the unlikely people are the ones who receive Jesus. It's not always the people that we would expect. It's the sinners and the tax collectors. It's the Pharisees that we will, like, afterwards, like many Pharisees and priests come to know Jesus after he's raised from the dead. People that on the forefront, we go, those people are never going to understand. So by God's grace, may we lay aside our preconceived notions of who will and who will not respond And may we with boldness make him known everywhere we go. Will you pray with me?